I'm just going to share with you what, what God's been showing me in my own private devotional time kind of a thing. This, and uh, So bear with me if I get some references wrong or it takes me a while to find a passage. But uh, my text that I'm going to use as my launching pad today is from the Gospel of Mark. It's Mark chapter 1, and I believe it's verse 14. Yeah, starting with verse 14. Mark chapter 1, verse 14, we read now, After John was arrested, John came into Galilee, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, the word gospel is a pretty big word in the New Testament. It's very comprehensive. And usually when we think of the word gospel, we kind of limit it to something like John 3.16, right? We think, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And that's sort of the personal aspect of the gospel that's directed towards us as individuals, right? Whosoever will believe in him. But when you read the New Testament, you see that the gospel contains more than just that message to us personally. So, for example, if you go to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, and you read how Paul starts this epistle, he talks about the gospel too. He says, this is Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he proclaimed beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, what's the content? Here he moves into the content of this gospel. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of righteousness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among the nations. So here we see the content of the gospel is really all about Jesus here in Romans. He's saying that this was the Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament that's coming, and now God, by raising him from the dead, has declared him to be the rightful king. He is the divine son of God, and that's sort of the foundation of everything that Paul is laying out there in the book of Romans. And now when we come to Mark... Um, do we have anybody in the sound booth back there, by the way? <laughs> we had a little bit, of, maybe a little bit of feedback, I think, from some of these mics. When we come to the verse that I just read, and we're talking about Jesus proclaiming the gospel of God, what's the content now? You see, if you think that he was going around explaining penal substitutionary atonement, <laughs> You're, you're missing what Mark is saying here. That's not what Jesus was doing. That would, you know, that doctrine would be developed later on. The, the content of this gospel was the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus was preaching about. Now, I've been reading a book about this by a man named George Ladd. He says, when you go through the gospel message and you look at these kingdom passages, there's three basic ideas behind this kingdom of God idea, main idea. And to really have a fully integrated picture, you've got to get all three. And usually at best, we get about two of them, okay? And here's how it works. His, biblical history is basically divided into two ages. You've got the present age that we're living in, right? And you've got the age to come. 
And it's going to be divided by the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Now, this is a little bit of an oversimplification for you dispensationalists out there. Please don't get mad at me, all right? It's a simplified picture, but that's basically it. All right, and part of the kingdom message, the kingdom of God will be fully consummated not until the age to come. It's when Christ returns that the reign of God will be fully manifested in all of creation. All of creation will enjoy the blessings and the rule of God in that age to come. And that's what we're looking forward to. But what is interesting about Jesus' message is the idea that that same kingdom is already present in the present age. All right? That Jesus brought the kingdom with him. So, for example, when you go... I'll go back to the book of Romans real quick. And uh, Paul talks about the present reality of the kingdom of God that's broken into this age in which we live. He says in verse 17... Of chapter 14, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's a spiritual aspect that the kingdom of God has been manifested. Chapter 12, where he says, if I have cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then... The kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God was all. And so that's the second reality of the kingdom. The kingdom is not fully realized yet, but it is manifested and already been manifested in the present evil age that we are now in that's dominated mostly by rebellion towards God. But what is the underlying thing that, that brings it all together? And this is where George Ladd really helped me out. He said, this is, this is the thing that we miss about this. When we think kingdom, we think primarily a territory. We think primarily a realm. And he said... When the biblical writers thought about the kingdom of God, what they thought about first and foremost was this, God's reign. It is the rank, authority, and sovereignty that a king exercises. It was the power and authority of God entering into God's creation. And so when Jesus is proclaiming this message at the very beginning of his ministry, and he's saying the kingdom of God is at, is at hand. That's, that's part of what he's talking about. God's rule. The king is coming. And so you need to repent. You need to get ready for the rightful rule of God because it's already beginning. It's already going to be manifested here in the present age. Now, I think this has very important implications for the church. You see, because if the kingdom is really already present in the created order, then we ought to be seeing the same kind of transformative power that was present in Jesus' ministry, but it was also present in the ministry of the disciples. It was present in the book of Acts, right? When Peter and John were at the temple and there was a man that was lame and he was healed, that was a manifestation of God's kingdom. When they preached at Pentecost and 5,000 people 
That was a came to came to belief in Jesus Christ. That was a manifestation of the kingdom. And I think the book of Acts, you know, is meant to be continued on. You know, it ends in chapter 28, but we're still living in that same story. All of us right now. That's the narrative. And so the question that I've kind of struggled with a little bit in my life is, okay, why why don't we see this transformative power at work in the church so much? You know, a few years ago when I stepped down and stepped back from ministry, I mean, part of the reason was I didn't know that I fit in theologically with the leadership of the church, but part of the reason was I just knew God was telling me to do it. And that was one of the things that I was wrestling with. I was thinking, God, I, I believe I believe what's written in this book about Jesus and about the apostles and all that stuff. And I was thinking, God, where is this transformative power? Where is it? And interestingly enough, in my own life, it wasn't until I stepped back and stepped away that I that I started to experience it in my own life. In in a really in a really dramatic kind of a way. And ever since then, my my heart has been I want people to experience this too. But but they're not, a lot of them. And so I think there's, there's two, there's two major problems that I want to talk about here. And, um, you know, years ago, I think it was like 10 or 15 years ago, it was Francis Chan who came out with the book Crazy Love. Anybody read that book? You know who I'm talking about, right? It's a very big name. I love that guy. I, I do. And I've heard him speak in person a couple times and it, it's, it's been amazing. But he wrote that book and then there was just like a, a whole library of books that started being written. They were all kind of about the same thing. It was like the church is kind of lukewarm right now. We're not doing evangelism like we should be, and we're not giving like we should be, and we're not sacrificing like we should be. And all these guys got together, and they wrote all these books, and they came out with all these programs of how to be disciples and make disciples. And here we are 10 to 15 years later. And when you look, I mean, it's transformed individual lives, certainly. And it's had an impact on my own life. But when you look at the church as a whole in America, is the church better off now than it was 10, 15 years ago? I mean, to me, it seems like it's it's getting worse. It's more like a dead organization than a living organism still. And I think that, that you know, there's just divided hearts, you know. Like, for example, if my, if my wife, she's not here this morning. She's with two of our kids are sick, too. And that's, that's where she is this morning. Um, if she said to me one, one Sunday, you know, uh, my ex-boyfriend's in town and I'm going to spend the afternoon with him. We're not going to do anything. I mean, I'm just going to, we're just going to talk. We're just going to hang out, you know. I was like, okay. And let's say she was telling me the truth, that there's no sexual immorality going on or anything like that. And then the week comes, he says, I'm going to hang out with him some more. And, and maybe this next weekend too. Now, even if nothing was going on between them, do you think that that would produce some uh, unease in our marriage? <laughs> yeah, even if nothing else was going on, it would still be a big problem. Now, we seem to think there's certain things that are not sinful in and of themselves, but it's okay to overindulge for that very reason. Like, I can glut myself on entertainment as long as it's like Christian entertainment or close to, right? And I can glut myself on material possessions so long as they're the right material possessions, right? And here's the great thing. If somebody accuses me or calls me out on this, I just say, hey, you Pharisee. (laughs) That's all I have to do is tell you you're being a Pharisee and that we're not saved by works. 
Now, now here's the deal, folks. I, I get that that legalism problem. All right. And what what is a legalist, by the way, or what is legalism? Legalism is when you try to solve the problem of a divided heart with rules. That's what legalism is. You're in love with the world more than you're in love with Jesus. Here's the solution. I'm going to give you boxes to check off. And if you just check off those boxes, you're going to be fine, right? And this was, you know, years ago, there was a big, and this is like 20 years ago, there was a big purity culture. Does anybody remember that? Josh Harris, I kissed dating goodbye, and just recently he kissed Christianity goodbye, unfortunately. I mean, I pray for the guy right now that he he returns to the faith. But you can get people fired up about that kind of stuff for a little bit. If, if you're really motivated and people were really fired up about the purity thing and they had the purity rings and the purity pledges and all that stuff and it just kind of fizzled out, right? Because here's the deal. Like most people are not going to be committed enough to do that for a very long time. And it's even worse if you're successful. <laughs> if you're a successful legalist, that's that's the worst thing that can happen to you because then you get into this this business where... And I know this from personal experience, okay, where you're checking off those boxes and you're looking around at other people who aren't and you start to think, oh, you just Philistines, you know. You guys aren't checking off the boxes like I am. And you start looking down on folks. And and what's what's even worse is you're still insecure because you know there's other people that check off more boxes than you do. <laughs> I think Wayne McLean said, it is a, being the morality corrector of your neighbor is a dry run, folks. And when Jesus said that the kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit, who are the poor in spirit? This is what I was talking about a couple weeks ago. The poor in spirit are people that don't look down on anybody. They don't want to look down on anybody. They want to love people. They want people to thrive. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. So the legalistic thing, it, it, it doesn't work, but then, People think the only other option is to throw your hands up. But what if, what if Jesus could change your divided heart? Now I want to go, I want to go to a story in Mark. This is Mark chapter six. This is one of the most fascinating passages in all of scripture to me. It's Mark chapter six. It's Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth. <clears throat> Let me go ahead and read it beginning with verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Hoses, um, or Joseph, and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And here's, here's the thing I want us to pay attention to here. Look at verse 5. And he could not. Now notice the word there is not would not. The word that Mark uses is the word could not. He could not do, he could do, <laughs> he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled at their unbelief. That means Jesus was blown away 
by their unbelief. And here's another thing that's interesting. You might think, like, he, it says he did less miracles because of his unbelief. That's important, too, because you might be tempted to think, well, if they were unbelieving, the solution would be to do more miracles, right? That would be the thing that would get them to believe. But if you read the Exodus story, you'll find out quick that that does not work well at all. Because what happened to those people that were brought out of Egypt? A lot of them. They saw all these miracles of God. They saw God bring the plagues down. They saw his miraculous deliverance at the Passover, right? They saw the Red Sea parted. They saw a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire by night. And yet most of them, after seeing all that, perished. And why did they perish? It tells us in the book of Hebrews chapter 3. Let me go there real quick and read it. Read it for you. It says, beginning with verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? And here in the last verse, it talks about the root of that disobedience. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Do you really believe that Jesus is alive? Do you really believe that he can live in you? And do you really believe he can make you into the person He created you to be, and do you believe he can give you a new and undivided heart? Now, if you polled most Christians today who are sitting in church, I guarantee you that would come, that would be like probably what, 99% would say yes, we believe all those things. And I don't think that's true. And why do I not think that that's true? Because if that were true, the church wouldn't be dying, folks. If we really believed that Jesus was alive, If we really believe that if I, by faith, call upon his name and say, Jesus, only you can take care of my undivided heart and only you can make me a new creation. If we really believe that, revival would break out like wildfire all over this country. People don't believe it. They say that they do, but they don't really believe it. And I'll tell you one of the ways that this has manifested itself most in in my life that I've seen is, is when it comes to to prayer. I've been in a couple different situations. And here's the deal. Uh, church is supposed to be a team sport. <laughs> and you know why? Because we don't all have the same skills. Like, I can sort of get up and preach a sermon sometimes. But I people think that because I can do that, I must be able to do everything <laughs> really well. And I'm, I'm continually disappointing people when they find out that I can't, okay? So like for one thing, one gift I wish I had that, that I don't really have is some people, they're able to sort of look around 
and they're able to see where God is working in a given situation and how to like organize people to align with what God is doing. I wish so much that I had that gift because it's such a valuable gift, but I don't really have it. That means I need somebody in here who's got it. <laughs> okay? So when people come to me in those situations, there's a problem, and they're like, Jeff, what do you want to do? And I usually say, I want to pray, because that's all I can do, folks. And I guarantee you, and I'm, I'm in groups, this, these are Christians that I'm talking with here. I guarantee you, you're in a group like that, you say, let's pray. You're going to hear these words verbatim within about five minutes. You ready? These are the exact words you're going to hear. You can't just pray. And I tell you, when I hear those words, I think we're in trouble. Now I get, now first of all, who said that prayer and action were mutually exclusive, by the way? I didn't. <laughs> but when people, you know, and yeah, okay, so there's, there's a sense in which it's true that you, you just can't pray. But, but let's, let's think about this, folks. You go back to Pentecost, okay? What were the disciples doing before they were baptized with the Holy Spirit? They were just praying. They're just in a room. Praying. Now let's say that Peter gets impatient and he says, you know what? I'm tired of waiting around here of doing nothing. This ain't going to do nothing. I need to get out there and start preaching. And he went out and started preaching before he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. How do you think that first sermon would have gone? You think 5,000 people would have come to Christ? I don't. I think that would have fallen flat on the earth. Here's another thing we need to believe, folks, that we don't really believe. This is quickly becoming my life verse right here. Apart from me, you can do nothing. God is trying to get me to believe that, and I, like Bill, I'm pretty stubborn. Because we don't want to be completely dependent on God. We don't want to wait on Him. We don't want to say, you know what, God, if you don't give us wisdom, if you don't show us what to do, it's not going to work. And we don't want to do that. So we want to make programs and we want to have organizations and they're not working. It's not working. I want to tell you a, a testimony I heard of a, of a gal who, who got her prayer group to church and this is what they did. They would come to church just um, 10 minutes early and they would sit in the chapel and they would just pray. Okay? They would pray over the service. They would pray that Jesus' redemptive love would be manifested in that place. And when the minister came in, they would start to pray for the minister. Not that the minister would believe what they wanted him to believe <laughs> or preach a short sermon. They, they, they prayed that he would preach to the best of his ability and that God would bless him. And here's, here's another kicker. If they saw someone in that room that, they, that one of the people had a problem with, they would single that person out and pray for God's blessing on that person. And it, and it totally changed the atmosphere of their church. Now, now, by the way, it, it is true that you can't just pray. And these ladies, by the way, if, if the, the reason that they were able to do that and it was effective is because they were truly committed. You see, if, if during the week they were living lives full of slander and gossip and complaining and then come to church on Sunday 10 minutes early and check off the box, yeah, that, that's not gonna, it's not gonna work. The Bible says in Psalm 66, verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. That's true for the redeemed and the unredeemed. If I've got that poison of resentment, if I've got slander on my tongue, that's gonna impact your prayer life, the Bible is very clear. 
But they just prayed. They trusted. They depended on God. And God showed up. And I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you one more testimony along these lines. There was a gal who said that she had a teenager who was hanging out with, uh, starting to hang out with a friend that made her a little bit nervous. <laughs> okay, now I was just, we were just talking about this before service. You know, I've been working with teenagers all my life, ever since I, I graduated from college. And I said, my, my kids have not reached the teenage age yet. And I say, it's, it's great because they will still listen to me. Uh, but because I've worked with teenagers, I know that they will stop once they hit their teenage years. <laughs> More than likely at that point, I will need someone else to start telling them stuff. Okay? And so this mom is really worried because she knows if she sits her daughter down and just says, hey, I, I really am uncomfortable with you hanging out with that that gal that you're hanging out with right now. She could see that she wasn't going to be a good influence. But here's what she did instead. She said, I, went, I would go into my uh, daughter's room and she wasn't there. And I would just pray and worship in a room. She would lay down on her bed where her daughter would rest her head at night and she would pray, just pray, hour or more, day after day. And guess what, folks? It worked. I was just preaching at chapel this this week, and here's here's where I'm going to close today, or um, close pretty soon. Uh, I was preaching at chapel at ICS, and I was preaching from this, this verse from John. It's John chapter 10, verse 27. It's a really simple verse. Jesus is talking, and he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, notice, notice what he says. He said, my, my sheep hear whose voice? My own voice, like it's not me, it's not about me telling you all about Jesus. That's not gonna do it for you folks. I can tell God loves you until I'm blue in the face. But you need to hear His voice. He said, my sheep know my voice and they, they, I know them and they follow me. He didn't say they came to a building once a week and sang songs or they put a Christian label over the light. He said, they hear, they hear my voice. And that we've got to get back to it somehow. I mean, I, the, it's the God of this world that blinds our eyes. And I know that. And we need the Holy Spirit to open those eyes. But that's, that's my heart is that I, if people would just believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he can do what the scriptures said that he could do, then we would see the kingdom of God manifested in the same way it was manifested in those scriptures. Would you like to see that? Okay, so I'm going to close in. I'm going to close in prayer, and um, I'm going to start off with a prayer of my own, and then I'm going to I'm going to lead us all in a prayer. And if uh, just just sitting right where you're at, silently, you know, you just repeat the words to yourself. If you want to pray that prayer. But I, I, I know that God can do the things that the Bible tells us that he did. And he can still do them. And he can turn things around. And I just, all I can, all I can do is tell you guys, I, I know this guy. <laughs> and if you would just know him too.
you would see the kingdom of God. All right. Holy Father in heaven, um, we need you to start ministering to us right now. And we invite you to come right now into this place where we're gathered in your name. And Holy Spirit, we need you to start working in people's minds and people's hearts. And here's what we pray, Lord, that, that the consuming fire of your love will burn away every obstacle that's standing between anyone here and you. We pray that people would sense your presence right now. Sense you, Lord, near them, near their hearts, near their minds. And we pray that you will plant a deep and abiding hunger in them for your word, for your truth, and for your kingdom. Lord Jesus, we need you. And now, if, if you're here and you want to hear Jesus' voice and know him, then, then pray these words with me, all right? Lord Jesus, I want you to reveal to me who you really are. I want to know you personally, Lord. And I want to hear your voice. And I want you to come and live in me forever. And make me into the person that you have created me to be from the foundation of the world. Lord, grant me belief in your name. And we pray that your kingdom would come. And that your will would be done. On earth as it is in heaven.